0: The way that people respond to gifts says a lot about that person, even more than it says about the gift or the giver. So imagine the five-year-old on Christmas who's angry because he got a smaller toy car this year than he got last year. Or imagine the teenager who's bummed out because he got the old family car instead of the brand new one that dad's driving around now. Well, the way that we respond to the gifts that we receive says something about us. And in fact, it changes the relationship that we have with the giver of the gift. This is true not only of five-year-olds and 18-year-old boys, but of every single one of us as we reflect on the gift of grace that we receive in Jesus Christ, which is our salvation. The way that we respond to this gift is really, really important, not only as an expression of who we are, but as a formative piece of who Christ is making us to be. Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul responds to the gift of grace, which is our salvation, in prayer form. And there are a number of ways that we could look at this text in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. But I think we can primarily look at it as an example of how to respond appropriately to the gift of the gospel. In Paul's response and in his letter, we have a really good example of what it looks like to respond appropriately to the gospel. So follow along as I read this text, and and then we'll investigate these three really important ways to respond to the gift of the gospel. Paul begins in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3 by writing, "'For this reason I kneel before the Father,' from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his strength, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul responds to the articulation of the gospel first by humbling himself. And we need to humble ourselves in response to the gospel. He begins in verse 14 by saying that for this reason, and if you are looking at the text, you see this exact phrase at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, where he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and then he got into this big parenthetical paragraph that was a bit of a digression from his original thought in responding to the gospel and now he picks up again with it here he says for this reason which is everything I wrote about about the work that God has done in Christ to make a new people for his name for this reason I bow before the father or I kneel before the father well, in our Bible class over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about what posture does and what it communicates, and this language of kneeling before the Father is nothing less than a posture of humility in response to the gospel. This physical posture that Paul takes on certainly isn't the only physical posture that's appropriate in response to the gospel or in in prayers to God. Sometimes we pray with uplifted hands, sometimes with bowed heads, sometimes while we're driving in our cars. So Paul's not prescribing the way to pray or the way to respond to the gospel, but he is showing us what humility in response to the gospel looks like. And here, very literally, he kneels in prayer before the Father. This is an appropriate posture to the gospel. Now, he describes this Father as the one who names every family in heaven and on earth. And this is really confusing if you stop and think about it for a minute. What does it mean for God to name every family in heaven and on earth? And what we have here is one of these complicated translation issues that is tough to work with. but if you if you look at a handful of Bible translations, many of them translate this phrase "Every family in heaven and on earth." Well, I I can't make the argument here, but I would love to if you want to talk afterwards. But I think it would be better translated, the whole family in heaven and on earth. So the verse would then be rendered, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And this forges a connection with Paul's writing in chapter 2, where he identifies both Jew and Gentile as the household of God. Throughout chapter 2, Paul has argued that God is doing something new where he takes Jews and Gentiles together in Christ as the new humanity and he puts them in God's household, where Christ is the Lord of the household. And and this word that's here rendered every in the Christian Standard Bible, earlier when it's talking about the, the whole group, the whole temple, it, it's rendered whole. And I think that's the idea here. Paul is trying to say, I am kneeling before this Father the one who has orchestrated the whole plan of redemption and who's named every individual into his family who come to Christ. Those who are alive on earth now and those who have gone on in heaven who sit in the heavenlies with Christ, I kneel before that father, the father of the household on heaven and on earth. This naming language connects to Genesis and creation where Um, God names the new humanity that he created there, and then that Adam now names the animals. Well, here there's a naming of the new man of Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. So this confusing verse that we can't make much sense of, I think makes a lot more sense if we understand this, is the whole family in heaven and on earth. And Paul is just saying, I'm kneeling before God the Father, who's made a household for his name who's made a people for his name in Jesus Christ. And before that father, we kneel too. We take on a posture of humility before the father, or at least we should. Now, there are reasons that we don't humble ourselves before God. And and there are other postures that we take, there are other attitudes that we take on that actually sabotage the humility that we ought to have before the Father. And I want to just explore three potential sabotaging attitudes that would keep you from humbling yourself before God as we strive to follow in Paul's example here, as we seek to imitate him as is appropriate. The first attitude that would sabotage our humility before the Father is an attitude of apathy and forgetfulness. If we respond to the gift of salvation with apathy or forgetfulness, we cannot be humble before God because we're not even thinking about it. So the subversion of humility by apathy is almost undetectable at first. This slowly erodes at the humility and thanksgiving and gratefulness that we ought to have in response to the gospel. And it can really be described as a kind of practical atheism. To operate in this world forgetful about the gospel or apathetic to it is to function practically as an atheist, which places us in the language of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 without hope and without God in this world. So I want to encourage you to reflect on and think on the gospel regularly and do whatever it takes to remember the gospel and to respond with humility and joy and thanksgiving. Don't forget the gospel. Now there's a danger in churches to simply assume the gospel, to operate as if everybody knows what the gospel is and to move on from there. But as many have noted, the generation that assumes the gospel will be followed by a generation that forgets the gospel. So we need to be a church that regularly remembers and talks about the gospel. And, and that's one of the benefits of going through Ephesians in this slow way that we have, because week after week, we've been able to see the unfolding of the redemptive plan of the gospel and to talk about what it means to respond appropriately to that. And that's what we're doing here once again today. So reflect on the gospel. Talk about the gospel with others. This should be a regular rhythm in your life. It's to rehearse the gospel. Read good books about the gospel. We have a book in the back that you can take if this will help you, called "What Is the Gospel." There are other books like the King Jesus Gospel that we recommend in freely give out. We want to help you remember and reflect on the gospel whenever possible because apathy and forgetfulness about the gospel will erode the proper response to this gift that we all ought to have. A second insidious sabotaging response to the gospel that we could easily take on is an attitude of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Where apathy and forgetfulness slowly but persistently erode away the foundation of our faith self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and legalism replace the foundation of our faith altogether so so where apathy finds its insidiousness through its you know sort of under the cover of darkness slow eroding away at your faith Self-righteousness is a a deceptive attempt to say that you don't need the Christ of faith at all because you have you. So instead of appealing to the mercy and love and grace of God as the activating agents in our salvation, the self-righteous or self-sufficient person only looks to themselves, and, and there's no reason to be humble or grateful or thankful at all. But this is antithetical to the message of the gospel that Paul has preached throughout Ephesians. In fact, if you recall in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul declares that our salvation is by grace through faith so that no one can boast. And what is self-righteousness but boasting in ourselves rather than in Jesus Christ? So it's almost this response to the gift of salvation is acting as if the gift is deserved and is not a gift at all. It's just the, the, the thing that is owed to you for being as awesome as you are. So we need to fight against apathy, but we also need to fight against self-righteousness. But then a third attitude that can erode away or sabotage our humility is an attitude of unrighteousness or antinomianism that's sometimes called libertarianism. So if apathy slowly erodes the foundation of our faith and self-righteousness replaces the foundation of our faith, unrighteousness or libertarianism misunderstands the foundation and goal of our faith. And we have to fight hard against this in, in one of the biggest challenges I think especially for a church like ours where many at some point of in your life were connected to an institution or a church that would identify or be identified as legalistic or something like that there's this response of swinging the pendulum to say I don't want to be a legalist so I am going to have nothing that that even sniffs of legalism in my life which means I don't care about the command of Christ. Well, this is a response that is not a gospel response, but it totally misunderstands what God is doing in the gospel in your life. Paul has pointed this out in Ephesians 1, where he says that you were predestined so that God would present you holy and blameless before him. This is where in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you received this gift, not by works that you have done so you can't boast. So Paul crushes self-righteousness on the one hand, but then he immediately says, so that you will be a new creation in him who does good works. You were created for that purpose. So it crushes unrighteousness or antinomianism on the other hand. So in each one of these along the way, Paul Paul has attacked every one of them. So so this is not just an arbitrary list of things that might sabotage humility, but things that Paul has addressed throughout the letter. And so I think we need to pay attention to these things, and we need to try to detect them in our lives. So we need to humble ourselves before God. So, So what do you do when you detect these things in your lives? First, you need to connect to the community of faith. Paul has emphasized throughout this letter that your salvation is not a private affair, but a corporate reality. So when you start to experience things that are going to erode away the foundation of your faith or cause you to respond inappropriately to the gospel, you need the community of faith. Now I mention this all the time because I think it's so helpful. This guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talks about the Christ in the other person being stronger than the Christ in me. We need one another and we need to cling to one another as we cling to Christ and as a means of clinging to Christ. But then second, you need to pursue humility with all of the intentionality that you can. And I think that this can include literally kneeling before the Father, confessing your sin and appealing for his grace in your life. We talk often about physical posture as something that expresses something in you, but you don't have to feel humble or be humble to kneel is an expression of humility. Sometimes you need to kneel before the Father so that humility is formed in you from the outside in as you recognize your true standing before God. We, we need to find a way to humble ourselves, and I think we can follow Paul's example here by kneeling before the Father. So how do we respond to the gospel? Number one, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves before the Father. But then number two, we we need to pray for others. We need to pray for others. And in in this section, there's a sense in which we need to pray for ourselves. But as we get connected to the community of faith, as the gospel adds us to Christ's people, we now have an outward focus that cares about the concerns and the needs of other people. And Paul, in this section, in these few verses, gives a really good example of what it looks like to respond to the gospel in prayers for the community of faith who've been redeemed by the gospel. And he gives four things to pray for. First, power through God's Spirit. Second, Christ's indwelling presence. Third, knowledge of redemptive love. And then fourth, God's filling presence. So we'll look at these. I'm going to read this whole text, and then we'll jump back and look at them individually but they're highlighted there for you on your screen so you can see these major requests. He writes, I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So so I'm looking at this prayer of Paul as a really good model and example of how we ought to pray for one another as gospel-lized, gospel-changed people. And we first pray for one another for power through God's Spirit. So Paul's prayer is for Christians to receive power from God through the Holy Spirit that's demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talks about this power being experienced in the inner being of the person. And this is instructive for us as we start to learn how to pray for each other as a gospel community. And that's for God's power to be experienced in the inner being. Now there are certainly texts in the New Testament that call us to pray for one another as we experience sickness and um, crises and poverty and all of these other things. But it's interesting to me that throughout Ephesians and most of the New Testament, when we are called on to pray for God's power in the life of a person, it's with respect to the inner being. So I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for your church when you hear of back aches and struggling bank accounts. Pray for those things. But I, th- I think that as we recognize and respond to the gospel, it places us at a certain place in redemptive history and in the timeline of God's redemptive work where the major goal of the gospel in the already not yet that we're in is not a flourishing bank account and, and physical health that will never end. We, we understand, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that Christians suffer, and it's through suffering that we rise victorious in Christ, and ultimately that suffering is in death. And that's instructive for us as we pray for one another. So when we, we pray that God would take away illness and pain and hardship, but more foundationally, we pray that God's power would be expressed in that person as they navigate this illness and hardship and, and, and problems that they face in life. Because we know that the gospel says that that God has your best life for you in the age to come, not now. So, So we pray when there are challenges, but ultimately we pray for a cultivation of spiritual fruit and personal holiness and Christian unity and the resurrection power in the inner being that makes itself known through suffering. This is because the gospel has promises connected to those things. It doesn't have promises connected to your bank account. It it doesn't have a promise connected to your cancer. Those promises are that God will bring you through death in this life and raise you up again in the age to come. So as as we respond to the gospel, it should change the way that we pray. And I think it's good for you to think about how you pray for others. And just on occasion, start noticing, what are the things I pray about for people in this church? Are all of my prayers oriented to someone's financial prosperity and physical health? Or am I praying for God's resurrection power to work in their inner being, to transform them from being dead in sin to alive in Christ? I think we need to pray those kinds of prayers. And I'll just say that we as pastors need to work to model this in our pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings. We we look at that prayer as something that models how you ought to pray for this assembly and for one another. So know that as pastors, we're trying to work on this and think about it and to have minds that are shaped by the hope of the gospel and not minds that are shaped by the, the hope of this life in the, the, the American dream. So number one, we need to be praying for God's power through his Holy Spirit in the inner being of every individual in this church and in our church as a whole. But number two, we ought to be praying for Christ's indwelling presence. So in verse 17, he picks up the second request and he says he he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's already pointed out that salvation is a gift of grace through faith. And here he connects the indwelling presence of Christ as one of those key features of our salvation. We experience our salvation now that we receive by faith with the indwelling presence of Christ in our heart through faith. Now you might ask, is Paul suggesting that this that there were people in this church or this church did not have Christ dwelling in their hearts at the moment, even though they're Christians, as if it's possible for Christ to be absent from his people. No, that's not the case. Instead, I think what's being indicated with this request is that there, there is an intensity of Christ's presence that we sense and experience as our faith grows and deepens in him. And so it's right for us to pray that Christ would be stronger in you today than he was yesterday. And it doesn't mean that Christ was absent in you yesterday. It just means that we need more of Christ every day because he's the one that's holding us fast and, and he's the one who keeps us. So we need Christ's indwelling presence. And as verse 17 points out, he dwells in our hearts through faith. So so we need to grow in our faith and experience the indwelling presence of Christ in our hearts. Now it's kind of challenging to talk about Christ dwelling in somebody's heart. What, What does that mean? Well, I think in our modern day, when we talk about someone's heart, we talk about it in terms of like the Valentine's Day cutout or the seat of your emotions or something like that. And it's it's a very affectional, feeling-oriented thing for Christ to dwell in your hearts. And this can be really discouraging for individuals who are less emotive by nature of who they are. Um, I, I remember reading this book that was really helpful about um, Christian joy, and I just never felt it. And I was like, well, am I not a Christian because I'm not feeling the kind of things that I hear other Christians feeling. Well, I I think it would be a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying to say that his request for Christ's indwelling presence is purely emotional. As if to be a true Christian, you have to have emotions and always feel a particular way. This is because in the ancient world, the heart was not considered something that was simply an emotional reality. The heart was indicative of the whole of that person physical, relational, psychological, emotional, all of it. So a prayer for Christ to dwell in the heart of that person is not simply a, a you know relational feel-good sort of request. It's a prayer that Jesus Christ, the risen, conquering King, would reign in the life of the individual. So for Christ to dwell in your heart is for you to say, Christ is the King of my life. It's not just to say, I feel a certain way when I hear a certain song about Jesus. It's, it's Jesus owns all of me. The heart is representative of the core of me, and it's indicative of the rest of me. So we need to pray for one another that Christ will rule and reign in the hearts of every one of us. So it, it is not bad. In fact, I think it is a great gift from the Lord if you feel emotionally a certain way about Jesus. If, if when you are singing Christ will hold me fast, you get goosebumps, that is wonderful. If you don't, you don't need that to be a Christian in fellowship with God. What all of us need is Christ seated on the throne of our hearts, ruling over us where we give ourselves over to him day after day after day. And we need to pray this for us, but we need to pray for one another that God would expand the kingdom of Christ in the hearts of every person here. So we pray for power through God's spirit. We pray for Christ's indwelling presence, but then we pray also for knowledge of divine redemptive love. He writes in verse 18, picking up with his third request, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, so your salvation is because of Christ's love. So remember that phrase in Ephesians 2, that that you are dead in sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So you've been rooted and grounded in love. You only have life because of God's love. So here's the request. I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. So here he brings together God's love and Christ's love, not as if they're separate kinds of love. God displays his love in Jesus Christ and his prayer is that you who are rooted in God's love would come to know the love of God that is unknowable. It's one of these prayers that's like, it's being answered, but it will never be fully answered because there's always more to be answered. And that's that's an, a wonderful prayer, isn't it? Have you ever been tempted to think, I've reached the end of God's love in my life? Or have you ever talked to a church member who feels like God doesn't love them or doesn't love them anymore? Well, th- this is a kind of prayer we should be praying for one another. That we would come to know the boundless breadth of God's love, and and that's one that you never need to stop praying for somebody. You keep praying that over and over and over again. And I, I, I think sometimes we can react to uh, this idea that our world grabs onto that says God is love and love is God, and we start to act as if God doesn't have love anymore. In in. A right, like grading against the the culture's definitions of love and these other things, we can wrongly start to minimize the boundless love of God. I think we need to talk about God's love way more often than we do. and And um, we we have to work on this. We have to think about God's love rightly. We can't separate God's love from the rest of who God is. But in the gospel, we see love and justice meet together. And it's there that we see God's love most clearly. And that's what we're responding to when we talk about praying that we would know God's boundless love. Before Christ, we were children under wrath but now we are adopted as God's sons and daughters, and we're children under love. So we should celebrate this love, and we should pray that one another knows this love more and more. I think sometimes when we talk about loving one another and knowing the love of the other person, we doubt people's love for us all the time. Uh, I think talk to you well, talk to your spouse or, or any other married couple and there's the temptation to hear that someone loves you and not believe it. I don't know what it is about us that doesn't, doesn't want to believe that somebody loves us. Well, there, there's this root of doubt that springs up in all of our hearts that doesn't believe God loves us. So let's pray for one another that we would know the unknowable, the love of God. Then number four, we should be praying for God's filling presence at the end of the verse there in verse 19. He says, I pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now once again, we have a sticky translation issue, but it's worth clearing up here. If, if you're looking at the Christian Standard Bible, the text says that you, you need to know the love of Christ so that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. So you need to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. And it makes it seem as if until you know the unknowable love of Christ, you won't be filled with the fullness of God. It's almost making this second statement um, dependent on the first. So the first is a prerequisite to the second. And in the word that's translated here, so that... Everywhere else in this text is translated that, and and those are different things. I pray that, or I want this to happen so that the other thing happens. And in all fairness to our Bible translators, this is challenging to know what to say, and I think we need to read different translations, and as we see them disagreeing, we approach it with humility, saying we don't know always which one it should be, uh, but as we look at this text, I think it makes far more sense to say that we are always growing in the love of Christ and there's not some certain knowledge that we have to hit before God indwells you and indwells the church. That, that's not the way that the Bible talks about God meeting us. He meets us in our weakness, in our lack, not in our fullness and in what we have. So I look at this as a fourth request and a very important one that's connected to the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Paul declared that this corporate salvation that's being experienced by all those who come to faith in Christ are being built together as a temple for God's dwelling in the Spirit. And here, Paul climaxes his rehearsal prayer of the gospel with this reality, that God is moving to fill his church with his presence. So in the Old Testament, you read of the tabernacle that was filled with God's relational presence and then the temple that was filled with God's presence and that presence left the temple. And in Jesus, Jesus is making the church the new temple. So there's not another temple to come. So the prayer is not for a building of a temple in Jerusalem to be filled with the fullness of God, but for the church to be filled with the fullness of God and for that church to extend across the globe so that God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's what Paul is praying for right here. So it's not as if this isn't happening now, but I think the prayer is for the church to thrive and grow and to spread. So when we think about our replant and relocation phase that we're in, I think we need to connect it to that request. That God's presence would fill Burnsville as this church grows and spreads. As we gather, we get this sort of like really bright collection of the candles of God's glory, if you want to think about it that way. And then when we scatter, those lights are taken across our city in the South Metro, and and God's presence is known in neighborhoods across the cities. And not just through our church, not just through Resurrection Church, but every other gospel preaching church in this city. So we pray this prayer for one another, and for this church, and for every church that we, we can know and think about. And I think the closer they are in relationship to us, we need to look at them not as, as business competitors, but as companions on the Great Commission work of spreading God's presence across the globe. So let's be praying for other churches. Let's connect with them. Let's, let's figure out how we can be on the Great Commission together and pray this for one another. So I have one suggestion for you as you look at these four things. If you want to be praying this prayer in a helpful way, I would recommend copying and pasting this text into a Word document and just putting a little blank in wherever there's you and start praying this for other people in our church. Use this as a little bit of a prayer template as you start to rewire the way that you pray for one another if, if your prayers have neglected to pray for these things. I'm not suggesting you need to pray this exact passage every day or something like that, but I think these prayers that Paul gives us here and in other texts are really good patterns and examples for us. So we respond to the gospel by praying for others. Then finally, we respond by praising God. This fits exactly with everything Paul said in chapter 1. He gave a truth about the gospel. He said it's for the praise of his glory. And now we get this climactic set of verses that are formally known as a doxology. And, and this is a praise to God in response to the gospel. It says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you can see in my highlights there that there's a split in two emphases in this praise. One is about God's power and the other is about God's presence. So that, that really helps us out. We have our two Ps there, God's power and God's presence. When we look at that first phrase, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, we we sometimes apply this to those backache and bank account kinds of prayers to where we, we start to appeal to get the God who can do above all that we ask or think to give us the biggest home in our neighborhood or or to give us the nicest truck or or whatever your what, whatever would be whatever that thing is for you we can start to say you know I believe in the God who can do more than I could ever ask or think so I'm 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 looking at this you know town home that I, I might buy but I believe there's a God who can give me a mansion instead even though I can't imagine it I I think that that's a misunderstanding of what's going on in this text and one that we fall into quite regularly. And and maybe not in as dramatic and a silly way as I just illustrated, but, but I think we do this all the time. We start to attach the gospel power and the gospel promises to the kinds of things that are temporary and passing away in this life, and it distorts not only our prayers, but also our praise to the God who does give these things on occasion. So we need to be thoughtful about the way we employ these phrases, whether in our prayers or in our praise to God, and realize what Paul is actually doing here. If you go back home and read Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, there has not been an iota about physical flourishing or prosperity in this whole text. If anything, there's been an emphasis on the suffering and the ironic victory that comes through death. So when we pray to the God who can do more than we can ask or think or imagine, we are talking about the resurrection power that's made known in the church and in Christ Jesus. The upshot, though, is that this is what we appeal for when we pray for these requests that we just looked at in in the middle section. When we pray for God's power and for Christ's indwelling presence. And when we we pray for one another, when we pray for God to fill the church and expand across the globe, we pray to the God who can do more than we could ever ask or think. And, And we can apply that to so many parts of our lives, whether that's a sin struggle that you're working through or the growth of a church plant like our own or another. We appeal to the God who does more than we could ever ask or think But then, when we see him do more than we could ever have imagined, we need to praise him for it, and we need to do it clearly and without any boasting on our part, because we couldn't imagine or ask or think for that to happen. And and while we might be tempted to think, well, it's really rare that God does that, start reflecting on what God has done in your life. Start reflecting what God has done in this church. For those of you who just joined us from other churches, think about what God has done in those churches. And as you start to reflect just on that little, like your lifetime kind of work of God, he's done more than you could ever have asked or thought. And then expand outward and hear from other Christians and read about God's work and and read the Bible. And God does more than you could ever ask or think. So praise him for it. One of the things that he has done beyond what anyone could ever ask or thought is move his indwelling relational presence from being isolated to a temple to a people. One of the things he did that no one could have ever asked or thought was for Christ to come and tabernacle among us, to make his presence known among us so that God dwells with men in the incarnation. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he shifts from the one able to do more than we could ask or think to to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. This word glory is one that is used in a variety of ways, and it it communicates like weight or heaviness, but really it communicates presence. It, It communicates God's Presence. So when we say to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, I think we could paraphrase it and say, you know, to to him, or may he be known and made big in Christ and the church forever. May his presence be felt in the church across the globe in every age. I think that's that's what's being said here. Clearly. God's power and glory have been made known in Christ. And Paul pointed to this in Ephesians chapter two when he said, or in Ephesians 1, when he said that the power of God was made known in the resurrection of Christ. So, so that's that piece, but His power and glory is being known in the church who is now His temple. There's been a movement from Jerusalem temple to, to a sacred place to sacred people, and, and Paul is praising God for that. and we need to do that as well. There's this commentator, a guy named Frank Thielman, whose summary on this whole text, I think, is helpful and encouraging and fitting. So I'm going to read this paragraph to you. Paul firmly believed that the God who was powerful enough to bless his people with every spiritual blessing, to save them from the power of sin and the devil and the flesh, to reconcile them to one another and to himself, to employ them strategically in this age-old plan for the universe— to reveal this plan to them and to strengthen their downcast inner selves with a knowledge of the vast expanse of Christ's love for them, this God would receive glory forever in the church that he had created and in the Christ through whom he created. That's the God we worship and that's the God whose gospel we are responding to. So let's pray that God would help us respond to the gospel rightly, that we would humble ourselves that we would pray rightly in a gospel way for others and that we would then go on to praise the God of the gospel.